You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Our scripture today is Genesis 32:22 through 26. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. It's often said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. As we look at the first five books of scripture, stories abound of people who trusted God and those who did not. People who through faith went on to be ancestors who blessed those after them and others who proved to be ghosts that haunt their lineage with heartache and pain. So that begs the question, what kind of life are you building? What will your legacy be long after you're gone? What impact will you make on your family tree? Will they think of you as a gift that blessed them or a shadow that haunts them? Together, let's look at the Torah and see how God works in the midst of it all, how he calls us into his story, inviting us to walk in the steps of our ancestors who came before us. Good morning. Uh, Grab your Bibles, flip open to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. My name is John. If we haven't met, I'm one of our pastors here. Uh, As you're flipping there, a quick question for you. Uh, Who do you think is the highest selling female recording artist in all of history? Not Taylor Swift. Not yet. She's number six on the list. I heard of Rihanna. Beyonce seven, Rihanna two. You're all wrong unless you said Madonna. Okay, it's um, it's Madonna, and it's not even close. Madonna has sold more than a hundred and fifty million records, more than second place. And in case you're in here and you don't really know who Madonna is. You're young, and social media has failed you. That's all I know to tell you. Uh, Madonna's career spans 45-plus years with number one hit singles in five different decades. She's had 46 number one Billboard hits on the Dance Club singles list. Uh, And uh, she, yeah, there you go. In April 1991, Vanity Fair did a profile of Madonna where they asked her about her professional drive that had sustained her very long career. And she had this response that strikes me as fascinating. She said, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. 
I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. This is the all-time best-selling female artist ever, and yet haunted by a fear of being mediocre, inadequate, not enough. It reminds me of a college Instagram post I saw a few weeks back. The caption said, first day of class, positive affirmations. These were the first three. You are enough. Even if other people don't believe in me, I believe in me. And third, I am doing my best, and that is more than enough. Interesting. Hold those in your mind. One more quick example, and I'll get to my point. I'm not sure if you were as surprised or if you even know that Ryan Gosling uh, recently for the original song, I'm Just Ken from the Barbie movie, they won the Critics' Choice Award. And it is now Oscar nominated as well. Gosling was shocked. Don't know if you were. There's a lyric in the bridge that quite poetically goes, I'm just Ken and I'm enough. And I'm great at doing stuff. So hey, check me out. Yeah, I'm just Ken. Here's my question with all of those examples. Why do people feel the need to tell themselves over and over and over, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough? Is it possible that we don't make mantras and repeat things to ourselves over and over again when they're easy to believe? Is it possible that the repetition, the way that we keep telling ourselves reveals that there's actually a fear underlying that of, am I enough? That maybe many of us relate to Madonna's sense of feeling inadequate and mediocre no matter what we accomplish in life. Which all of that brings us to today's Torah narrative as we focus on the life of Jacob. We met Jacob briefly last week. We'll do his story in reverse chronology. If you like movies that start with a scene at the end and then flash back, that's what we'll do with Jacob this morning. No context. We're diving right in at verse 23. Genesis chapter 32, verse 23. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. I don't know how familiar you are with this story. If you grew up in church and Sunday school, you might be too familiar to realize this story is very strange. If you're just reading along in Genesis, when you get here, this should stand out to you with a lot of questions, immediate questions pop up. Who is this man 
that Jacob wrestles with? Why won't he tell Jacob his name? Why does he wrestle Jacob at all? What style of wrestling? Wrestling, Freestyle Olympic, Greco-Roman, WWE professional, Iron Claw, we don't know. Why does Jacob have two wives? Questions abound in this text. And here's a little biblical literacy tip in our year of biblical literacy. When you get to portions of the scripture that seem strange where questions pop up, don't let that frustrate you and make you want to put it down. A lot of times the strange parts with questions are where you should dig in and study more to find out what's really going on. As we dig in here, what we find out is that God himself has come to wrestle Jacob and this will be the defining moment in Jacob's life. Now to show you why, let's go back in the story. I wanna flip back to three different scenes in Jacob's life. We'll start in Genesis 25 that we saw last week. So in your Bible, you can flip left to Genesis 25. We'll start in verse 24. This is describing Jacob's mom. And it says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we met these twin boys last week, but we focused on Esau. Let's just recap some key points for context today. Esau is the firstborn, bigger, hairy, outdoorsy, man's man kind of bro. He likes to hunt and smoke meat. Their dad, Isaac, openly favors and prefers Esau. He's also a sinful mess who is absolutely ruled by his appetites, as we looked at last week. Jacob, by contrast, is born second. He's smaller, he's less hairy, and he connects more with the women in and around the tents. He's more of a Timothy Chalamet and less a Travis Kelsey. He connects more with his mom. Some of you may relate to that. And Mama Rebecca openly loves him for it. He is her favorite. And along with their physical and temperamental differences, the boys' rivalry is also built into Jacob's name. So this is scene one in Jacob's life, Jacob's sibling rivalry with Esau. And Jacob's name literally means heel catcher. It gets interpreted in a lot of ways, but the concept is thief or cheater, usurper, supplanter, someone who takes and steals from those ahead of them. The, the name heel catcher comes from the picture of their birth where Jacob comes out holding on to Esau's heel. And that may not make a lot of sense to you, but the idea is Esau was born first, right? Factually, Esau is born first. He's the older. But it's like little baby Jacob is holding on to the heel going, uh-uh, we came out at the same time. I was holding your heel. So same time, first place for both of us. I win. It's like, that's not how it works. Also, you're a baby. How did you know to care about this? But that's where his name comes from. Some of you um, have experienced this kind of sibling rivalry. And this kind of intense competition follows these boys well past their birth into their life. So last week, we saw Esau sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew, for essentially nothing. And if you're not wrong to highlight Esau's uncontrolled appetites and the ridiculous nature of the trade that he made, but you also wouldn't be wrong to notice Jacob is happy to make the trade with him. Jacob is not looking out for his brother Esau. 
He's not looking to love or serve or protect him. He sees an opportunity to get a leg up on him, to grab that heel and pull down. Sibling rivalry continues. And for Jacob, it's, um, it's that he doesn't get dad's affection no matter what he does. Esau is dad's favorite. Despite the fact that Esau is a sinful mess. No matter what Jacob does. He has the birthright now, so maybe now his dad will notice him. Nope. Some of you relate to this. Some of you have a dad wound in in some way, shape, or form. And if you do, or if you know someone who does, there's a, man, dad wounds can be crippling. They can affect people in just a myriad of deep, soul-level ways. And maybe for you, you don't have a sibling rivalry, but you still just relate to this concept for Jacob that Jacob is a man, his whole life trying to prove his worth. Trying to, con- trying to compete to show everyone, I matter. I'm here too. Don't just look at the big, strong, hairy one who cooks delicious meat. That's Jacob. That's scene one. Jacob is the less manly, inadequate twin brother. He can't get his dad's affection and his name means cheater. All of these will follow him and, and follow with us as we expand on this in scene two. Flip the page to chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. Scene two is gonna be Jacob's theft of Isaac's blessing. Jacob's theft of Isaac's blessing. Here we go. Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse one. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. So here's what's going on. Isaac is getting old and blind. He can feel death coming soon, but he does not know when it will be. So he calls Esau, the older, his favorite preferred son to hunt and cook wild game for him. And he tells him why. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing. Now, like the birthright, we don't really have a strong one-to-one corollary in our culture for the way that they saw blessing. But for them, blessing was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. Blessing was an official spiritual designation of approval. It was a dad looking at his kids, but primarily one of his kids and and bestowing upon them a preferred spiritual outcome, an authority, a life, a future of goodness and God's favor. Now, we hit on this last week. Technically, a dad could bless any of his children, all of his children, but first and foremost, the main primary blessing almost always went to the eldest because they had the birthright. Great. In this situation, who has the birthright? Jacob, right? Esau sold it to him. So who's going to get the blessing? Jacob, right? No, not if Isaac gets his way. Isaac still wants to bless Esau, his favorite despite the everything we know about Esau and the sinful train wreck that his life is. Isaac wants to bless him anyway. Well, Mama Rebecca is eavesdropping. She overhears this, and she's not having any of it. No, 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 no. Uh, Jacob has the birthright. Also, before they were born, God told me the older would serve the younger, and I'm going to make sure that Jacob gets his. So she and Jacob concoct a plot to trick Isaac. Jacob's dad, Rebecca's husband, they make a plan, a scheme to trick him instead of, I don't know, talking to him. You know, that would have been too easy. 
So Rebecca tells Jacob to dress up in a hairy Esau costume. It's not a joke. You can go read it. It's all in there. While Rebecca cooks Isaac his favorite kind of food. Jacob takes the food to Isaac and he lies and he says, I'm Esau. And apparently Isaac is in such poor health and his eyesight is so blind that even though in his gut, he's like, I don't think this is Esau, the ruse works anyway. And they trick him. And Jacob steals the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. Now I'd like, if you would, take a second and imagine this moment for Jacob. He's wearing a clown suit to steal his dad's blessing. He's dressing up as something he's not, desperately trying to get what he wants most in life but can't have. He's hearing all the words from his dad, the affirmation, the affection, the love, the joy that he's always wanted to hear. But he knows that his dad intends to be giving it to his brother. So he can't really receive it. It can't sink in down to the bottom of his soul. In fact, it was likely more crippling than anything because he knows Isaac wants to be blessing Esau. I don't know about you. Have you ever um, lied or cheated to win something in life? You don't have to say it out loud. I mean, safe place to be honest, but you don't. You can just whisper it to your neighbor or whatever. Um, It's a weird feeling, right? Not that I know, but you can imagine it would be a weird feeling because on the one hand, you win, so that's nice. But on the other hand, you know that you, you lied and you cheated to win, so there's kind of like, there's like this asterisk. Like you know that you're a fraud. You know you don't really deserve, it's, there's like a little whisper saying like, you don't deserve that. You didn't really win that. I mean, it's, it's, it's gotta be how I assume Michigan feels about their recent national championship. You know, you know. Asterisk, that's all I'm saying. Jacob now has the birthright and the blessing, but with an asterisk. He lied to get it. He lived up to his name once again. Heel catcher, cheater, fraud, blessing stealer. And this is the aftermath in Genesis 27, skip down to verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. For Esau, the sibling rivalry is about to come to an end. He decides enough is enough. Dad is gonna die soon. And after he does, I'm gonna kill Jacob because I now hate my brother. He's stolen everything from me. Now, that's not totally accurate. Esau's messed up some of this stuff. He gave him the birthright. Jacob didn't really steal that. But still, for Esau, this is over. Jacob has taken everything from me. I hate him. Once again, Mama Rebecca overhears and comes to the rescue. She hears about it, and her solution is to send Jacob running. Go to our extended family. Go find a wife. Go start a new life. And hopefully, time will heal all wounds between my sons, which leads us to scene three. Scene three is Jacob's desperation for romance. Thus far, we've seen more of a younger coming of age for Jacob. I mean, he's he's 40, but still it's like the starting point is like, and now we're going to see the fruit of some of this dad wound and sibling rivalry stuff. Flip to Genesis 29, starting in verse nine. 
Genesis 29, starting in verse 9. Rachel, who Jacob will end up marrying in a little bit, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess, working lady, nice. In verse 10, now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, he came near, note these details, they are insane. He came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. This is supposed to be startling. As you read this, if you're thinking, what on earth? My response to you would be, yes, correct response. This is abnormal human behavior. And I think we all are aware that that's true for a lot of how young men act around young women. But this, this is extra, like extra strange. He sees her, goes gym bro, and like pushes a big rock to try to show off the guns, I assume. Then he kisses her and starts crying. Jacob needs counseling. I don't know what else to say. I don't, counseling's good. This is not the only detail that indicates Jacob's pursuit of romance is seriously off and desperate. Just a little while later in the chapter, he offers to work for Rachel's dad, Laban, for seven years in order to marry her. Now, we don't really have this custom. In their time and place, this was a common cultural custom. But the normal amount of work would be two years. Because seven years is a long time. Jacob just blurts out seven years. There's no negotiation at all. And Laban's like, uh, yeah, I'll take that. It's a great deal. While it's easy to sit back and critique, the truth is that romance is still one of the most common places people look to fill up what's lacking inside of them, even thousands of years later. Ernest Becker, he's an atheist secular author. In his book, The Denial of Death, he describes how, especially amongst academic elites, how people have walked away from faith in God. And as they do, they end up looking for other things for meaning when they walk away from faith. And he points at romance as a big one. Listen to what he says about romance. He says, we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things, but how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, we now look for in the love partner. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Of all the people that I know of who look to the romantic solution, as Becker calls it, uh, Jacob's example is extreme, and it goes extremely wrong very wrong. He works his seven years for Rachel, which if you grew up in church and you heard that this is like a really nice love story and find you a man who will work seven years for you, it's like, no, find you a man who has dealt with his issues. Okay. Like this is, he works seven years for Rachel. He gets to the wedding night and uh, Rachel's dad, Laban pulls a three card Monty on him. He switches Rachel, the younger sister and Leah, her older sister, at the last second without Jacob knowing. We don't know exactly how this happened. Maybe Jacob was drunk. They did not have electrical lighting. It was, might've just been dark. Maybe the girls wore veils, but somehow, some way, 
Jacob thinks he's going to bed with Rachel, and in the morning he wakes up with Leah. And this is a picture of what at some level always happens to us when we put our hope in romance to fill up what is lacking in us. We think we're going to bed with, we think we're in love with someone perfect, someone who will fix all our problems, someone who will fill up our nothingness and justify us, and we find out they can't. We find out they are a sinful human like us who cannot fix all of their own flaws, never mind ours. They cannot fill up all that is lacking in us. Now, as you can imagine, uh, Jacob is outraged and he confronts Laban in verse 25 of chapter 29. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, it's easy to kind of miss what's going on here, but Laban takes a deep dig at Jacob's insecurities. He essentially says, I don't know about where you come from, but in these parts, we don't make a habit of blessing the younger before the older. Translation, because this is Jacob's mom's brother. He knows, and he says, I know all about how you stole the birthright from Esau. I know all about how you stole the blessing from Isaac but I'm not giving you what you want, you fraud. In my house, I'm gonna bless the older one first. My older daughter will be given a marriage first. So once again, Jacob's name, his worst moments in life and all that is lacking in him are haunting him. He lost the sibling rivalry for his dad's affection. He had to cheat and steal his blessing from his dad. And now his attempt to fill up what is lacking inside with a romantic relationship blows up in his face. And he's so desperate for Rachel, he works for her for another seven years anyway. Okay, those are our three scenes from Jacob's past. What's the theme? What's the thread that we're seeing in Jacob's life? What drives him? And the answer is Jacob is a man marked by a deep, desperate inner sense of inadequacy, not enoughness. Author and pastor, Dr. Timothy Keller, summed Jacob up like this. He said, he's that very ancient figure in the book of Genesis and yet an incredibly modern figure. Jacob is a man with an inner vacuum, an inner emptiness, desperate for other people's affirmation, other people's blessing for success, for approval. At least that's who he is when we find him at the start of chapter 32. Time jump. Jacob now has many children, 11, we're told. We'll get into chapter 30 and 31 a bit more next week as we study Leah. Uh, But first, uh, here's where we're at right now. He's finally decided to cut ties with Laban. That's a good move. Laban's not a good guy. And God tells him to head back home. And if you've been paying attention, there's only one problem with Jacob going back home, right? Who still lives at home? Esau, the big, hairy, scary one. The one who wants to murder him. We know this from the text that Jacob is um, uneasy as he heads back home. Genesis 32, pick it up in verse three. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. I love that. It's just like, uncle, before we start, just I'm tapping out, you're my Lord. Thus says your servant, Jacob. Jacob is terrified. Thus says your servant, Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord, 
in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Yeah, you get it. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He does not know if this is a 400-man army or a 400-man welcome party. He's leaning towards army. Go to verse 9. Jacob starts to pray, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. Hey, don't forget, God, you told me to do this and it would go good. Verse 10. Verse 10 is huge. If you like to mark stuff, I love verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Now, this is the first and, and the primary grace-based thing that Jacob has ever said about himself in the story. This is the opposite of I'm working really hard to fill up what's lacking in me. It's actually, no, God, everything in my life is a gift from you and I don't deserve any of it. He's owning it in a redemptive way. Not done with bad ideas yet, though. He asks God, please don't let Esau kill me. And then in verse 13 through 20, uh, 21, he comes up with one more plan. This time he decides to send a huge present at the front of his caravan to Esau. Maybe a present will calm down his wrath. After I stole everything from him, I think a present will work. And he puts all of the women and children after the present, but before him, which is not a good look. Like at best, he's thinking presents and nice women and children will calm Esau down. At worst, they'll get murdered first. It's not a good look. Either way, things get really interesting in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, as you study this passage, we find out this man is God. God shows up in the form of a man to wrestle Jacob. Here's my question. Why wrestling? Why is that the action God chooses? Why is that the way he chooses to engage Jacob? Think about that. And think about the theme of Jacob's life, insecurity, inadequacy, inner emptiness, anxiety. Why wrestle Jacob? Because God wants to give Jacob a metaphor for his entire life. God sees that Jacob has been wrestling his entire life, struggling to try to fill up what is lacking inside of him. And God means to put an end to his wrestling. God shows up to wrestle with Jacob to put an end to his wrestling, which is good because many of you are wrestling as well. Now, I haven't told you this. This is one of my favorite stories, narratives in the entire Bible. I relate a lot to so many different pieces. And I know some of you do too. This notion of wrestling to try to fill up insecurities and voids in our souls. Wrestling with past failures, with rejection. Wrestling with sins that you've done or sins done to you and sins you feel like you can't escape. Like Jacob, so many of us are wrestling to try to be enough, good enough, smart enough, pretty enough. Wrestling to feel mom enough, successful enough, wealthy enough, wanting to get someone's attention. Look at me, see me, notice me. Some of you, this is the defining thing for your life. You can't turn it off everywhere you go, everywhere you go. Did you see the good thing I just did? I did the good thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I messed it up. I ruined everything. Oh, you saw it. 
Who am I? Others of you, it's, it's not quite as prevalent in all aspects of life, but it's just someone really specific. Maybe it's dad. Just got to get dad's respect. Maybe it's a specific goal. I just have to accomplish that goal. And if I accomplish that goal, then I will matter. Then I will know that I'm enough. Then I will know that I'm worthy. God wrestles with Jacob to put an end to his wrestling, and he wants to put an end to your wrestling as well. I want you to notice three things as we wrap up here, three things that God does with Jacob that we need as well to put an end to our wrestling. Number one, God engages Jacob. God engages Jacob. Remember that up until this point in the story, we've seen Jacob lie, cheat, and steal, scheme with his mom to try to solve his problems, and generally run from his problems. And God shows up and says, hey, let's stop running. Let's stop trying to fill up. Let's stop trying to cover up. Let's stop trying to hide and put a costume on to act like we're someone we're not. Let's stop running and let's actually engage with and deal with our issues. It's time to engage with that deep longing for enoughness in your soul. I'd like to propose that the fact that you're here in the room hearing these words right now is proof that God wants to do the same thing in you. And there's a chance that you're thinking, no, thank you, Mr. Pastor, sir. That sounds terrible. That sounds like it will very likely hurt. There is a reason we run from these deep feelings of inadequacy. There's a reason we try to fill up what's lacking in us. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to risk the pain. Indeed. And Jacob leaves the wrestling match with an injury, does he not? He leaves with a limp. It's proof that at no point in time was God actually at risk of losing. And if you never risk that hurt to let God engage you in the places where you are lacking, you miss the chance at the healing he offers. My question is, how long are you going to run? How long are you going to keep looking to work or your kids or romance or your performance to try to fill up what's lacking inside of you? The 6,000 jokes you've said so far this week to try to be funny enough, they didn't work. Will 10 more work today? John? How long until you admit it isn't working? God engages Jacob in his insecurity and his deficits, and Jacob engages back. He doesn't run. He engages God and says, I'm not letting go, no matter how much it hurts. Now, this is tangent, direct application, possible next step. Last week, we said that uh, last week was the last week to sign up for recovery. I talked to Ryan, and in light of today's sermon, He has been willing to reopen registration. There are a very few spots left. And he has reopened the sign-up just in case God's Spirit has been pressing on you, telling you to go, and for whatever reason, you've been saying, nah, I'm going to keep running from that. And I'd love to encourage you not to. I think maybe there's a few of you this morning that God's telling you it's it's time. It's time to engage and push in on this and deal with this. I want to engage you in that painful sense of insecurity and anxiety. I want to grow your faith, and that's the next step for you. That's step number one. God engages with us to put an end to our wrestling. Number two, God gives Jacob a new name. Did you notice that? Verse 28 
Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. How much of Jacob's life has he been haunted by his name? Heel catcher, cheater, fraud, thief. God asked Jacob, what's your name? Heel catcher, cheater, blessing stealer, fraud, no longer. I'm calling you Israel, which means struggles or wrestles with God. God looks at Jacob and says, your whole life has been marked by this wrestle, this struggle for identity, this wrestle to prove yourself and earn a deep sense of blessing that you always wanted from your dad, but never got. Now you've wrestled with God until I blessed you. You wouldn't let go until I blessed you, until your needs were met. And in this story, as is so often the case, giving Jacob a new name is giving him a whole new identity. It's like how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I don't know if you guys know this or not. It's a little bit of a one-off tangent, but uh, last week we announced that last week was the last week to sign up for recovery. And I, uh, I don't know if you guys knew, but I talked to Ryan and I got him to open back up registration. There's a few, very few spots left just in case any of you think maybe God's telling you that's the next step you need to take. It starts tomorrow night. It's not a long wait. So you only have to deal with anxiety for like 24 hours and then you go and that was just a one-off. One of my favorite things that they do at Recovery Each Cycle is that at the beginning of the cycle, the people participating write down words and phrases and labels that feel like they define their lives. And then at at the end of the cycle, they write down new words and phrases and labels that they now see defining them after wrestling with God and the gospel and their issues and seeing how Jesus has brought healing and freedom given them a new identity. A few recent examples that I really like. Someone wrote down at the beginning that they uh, felt like a victim in damaged goods. And at the end of the cycle, they said, I'm now full of joy in light of God's love for me. Someone else wrote down at the beginning that I'm a control freak. And at the end of the cycle, their new label for themselves was I'm safe. So I don't have to go through all of life trying to control everything. Another person wrote, I'm heartbroken and bitter And at the end of the cycle, they said, I'm free to breathe in God's goodness. I don't know what labels you carry with you in life. Addict, coward, control freak, burden, the one who ruins everything. I don't don't know what labels you've attached to your soul, but I know God wants to give you a new name, a new label, son or daughter of God, beloved in God. Christ, God engages Jacob and he gives him a new name and he wants to do the same for you. That leads us to our third one. God gives Jacob a permanent undeserved blessing. The end of verse 29, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. There's a way to look at Jacob's life and realize the whole time he's been looking for a deeper blessing. He stole the blessing from his dad, but that didn't work. It couldn't sink all the way in. He's looking for a deeper blessing. He had to lie and cheat and steal to get everything in his life, but it came with an asterisk. And now here he is finally face to face with God, and he finally finds the truer, deeper blessing that he's been looking for the whole time. The blessing of a promised spiritual future, the blessing of his ultimate father's affection and love and joy 
preference. The blessing that Jacob wrestles for in Genesis 32 is a foreshadowing what is available to us in the gospel of Jesus. This is how Ephesians 1.3 puts it. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jacob wanted the special love of the Father. You can have it in Christ. Jacob had to dress up like his bigger brother to steal the blessing. But Jesus offers you freely to be clothed in his righteousness, to be clothed in a Jesus costume that he willingly gives so that when the father looks at you, he sees you clothed in Jesus's righteousness, covered all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your past, all of your not enoughness, everything lacking in you covered in the all sufficiency of Jesus. Was the blessing offered in the gospel. And some of you, you've been all around it your whole life, but you don't know it. You've been lying and faking and playing a religious game to try to convince everyone around you, I'm doing great. And on the inside, it's just deep wrestling and turmoil. And God wants to put that to bed once and for all. He wants to put an end to your wrestling. And some of you, yeah, you get it. You know the gospel and it's sunk in, but not into certain places. There are certain locked doors it hasn't gotten into yet. And this is a little bit of a one-off, but last week was officially the last week to sign up for recovery. And I, I begged Ryan. I went to him and I convinced I, I wrestled. I, leg, I arm wrestled with him. I didn't. But he said there are a few spots left in the... Registration's open till tomorrow at five. That's like right before it starts. You can wait till the last minute and be the procrastinator you've always been. And in 10 weeks, you won't be anymore. Jesus offers to you a supernatural source of love that cannot be taken or shaken. No romance, no lover, no love of a child, no love of a parent, amazing as it could be could ever fill you up the way that the supernatural, eternal love of your ultimate heavenly father wants to fill you up. No title at work, no promotion, no stuff could ever give you what your soul longs for at its deepest level. We're in teaching team and, and my friend Lizzie made an awesome uh, Observations. She said, you know, if you look at Jacob's life up until this point, if you look at the scenes we've looked at this morning, Jacob is set up to be a ghost. He's a mess. He's desperately chasing after all these things in life to help him feel enough. And yet Jacob becomes one of the like biggest ancestors in the Bible. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He shows up over and over again in the Psalms. This is callback to the God of Jacob. He, his name, Israel, he's the father of God's people in the Old Testament. The, the church in some ways becomes in the new covenant. This is it. This is the new identity offered to you. Wrestle with God to find out he'd like to put an end to your wrestling. I don't know the ways that you're set up to be a ghost, but you don't have to end up one because Jacob didn't end up one. Why? Because God wrestled with him and he engaged him and Jacob engaged back and he gave him a new name 
and he gave him a supernatural, undeserved blessing of grace that could never be taken from him. That's what he wants to give to you as well. The same wrestles in front of you. The question is, will you let God engage you? Will you let him give you a new name? Will you let him bless you? Or will you keep fighting your whole life to try to earn it for yourself and fill up what is lacking in you on your own? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much.